Chapter 5. Embracing the Wisdom of the Margins. African-American abolitionist and humanitarian Harriet Ross Tubman was born into slavery in 1819 in Dorchester County, Maryland. Whipped repeatedly as a young child, at the age of 12, she was seriously injured by a blow to the head. Consequently assigned to house duties, she learned the workings of the household. She also explored the lay of the land surrounding the plantation. Harriet began to weave these threads of knowledge together in the hope of formulating a plan to escape from slavery. One evening, when Harriet was 30, a white abolitionist neighbor gave her a slip of paper on which were written two names plus directions telling her how to find the first refuge on her path to freedom. There, she was put into a wagon, covered with a sack, and driven to her next destination. A series of abolitionists helped her journey northward through the eastern Maryland countryside toward the Mason-Dixon line. In the north, she settled in Philadelphia, where she savored the taste of freedom. She knew she could never be free, however, until all slaves were free. So at the risk of capture and death, she returned to the plantation in Maryland to help others find their way to freedom. Soon, Harriet became known as one of the most courageous conductors of the Underground Railroad. The secret network of free blacks and white abolitionists who assisted escaped slaves on their flight north. She developed a long list of safe houses and abolitionists. She also knew the woods and coastline of Maryland like the back of her hand. Since most of the railroad travel happened at night, she taught herself how to find her way by the stars. In all, Tubman made 19 trips back to the south and helped 300 slaves walk to their freedom. After the Civil War, Tubman settled in Auburn, New York, and dedicated her leadership skills to the cause of not only newly freed blacks, but also women and the poor. She collaborated with Susan B. Anthony in the women's suffrage movement with the generous assistance of her biographer, Sarah Bradford. She bought a house on seven acres of land and turned it into a home for the poor and the homeless of her community. Her work to bring care and justice to the least fortunate continued even after her death in 1913. In her will, she gifted her house to the city of Auburn for continuing its care of the homeless. International activist and politician Eleanor Roosevelt was born into a prominent New York family in 1884 and grew up in an environment of immense wealth. Yet, as a young child, she received little affection from her parents and was socially awkward. After her mother died when she was eight and then her father died two years later, Eleanor was sent to live with her maternal grandmother. She continued to suffer from loneliness, however, causing her shyness and self-doubt to deepen. When Eleanor was 15, her grandmother sent her to the Allenwood Academy, a boarding school for girls in England. The headmistress, Marie Sylvester, had a passion for social justice and encouraged independent thinking in her students. In that environment, Eleanor began to look past her own challenges to the social problems in the world around her. Overcoming much of her shyness and self-doubt, although her socially difficult childhood 
left her with a lifelong sensitivity to the suffering of others. After three years at Allenwood, Eleanor returned to New York and quickly developed a reputation on the New York political scene as an advocate for social reform. She volunteered as a social worker in the slums of the Lower East Side and joined the New York Consumers League, established to expose injustices in the workplace. After seeing firsthand overcrowded factories exploiting women and children laborers, she became active in movements for women's rights and better conditions for factory workers. When her husband, Franklin D. Roosevelt, became president of the United States, Eleanor redefined the role of first lady, turning the office into a force for social change. In one three-month period, she traveled 45,000 miles around the nation, visiting areas suffering from social, economic, or racial injustice. She reported regularly to Franklin, and her opinion shaped many of the reforms for which history celebrates her husband. After Franklin's death, President Truman appointed her delegate to the United Nations, where she continued her lifelong commitment to social reform, but now on a global scale, becoming a champion for universal human rights. She was elected chairperson of the committee to draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and when it passed unanimously at the UN on December 10, 1948, she received a standing ovation for her achievements. Both Harriet Tubman and Eleanor Roosevelt exemplify, in different ways, how embracing the wisdom of the marginalized can advance leadership for the common good. A marker unique to leadership for the common good is its invitation to leaders to move humanity toward more justice and caring by engaging the wisdom of the margins of society, which is all too often overlooked. The margins are places of lack and thus of need. Yet as areas where injustice most often occurs, they are also sources of the most accurate information concerning how injustice manifests and the reasons it persists. Neglecting to incorporate this knowledge into many plans for the transformation of society is what causes them to fail. Consequently, leaders hoping to mend the social fabric must be willing to take a close look at its tears. The majority of human institutions and communities are marked by a long history of inequity in some form. Human institutions and communities are frequently like a large, complex group of people around a single campfire in the wilderness on a freezing night. Some people sit close to the fire, enjoying its warmth and light, but since there is not enough room by the fire for everyone, others must sit beyond the reach of the fire's benefits, at the margins. Similarly, society's resources tend to be situated close to the centers of power, usually in the hands of a few privileged people. Those at the center tend to be unaware of the magnitude of suffering of those on the margins, who hunker down to survive with their limited resources. This unequal access to resources and power creates a fundamental us-them dynamic in the human family. The list of who is left outside the circle of comfort differs from group to group, but often includes women, people of color, sexual minorities, the disabled, the elderly, 
and people in third world nations. Yet the marginalized, who lack power, can be found anywhere, including nuclear families, places of worship, and workplaces, depending on which individuals or subgroups are the most isolated from decision-making and resource allocation. These and other marginalized pockets of society must be explored in order to work effectively for social change. A leader can also choose to plumb the depths of her personal experience of being marginalized. As Eleanor Roosevelt and Harriet Tubman did, a vision for the common good is never a grand vision crafted out of a leader's imagination. Rather, it comes from first-hand experience with the suffering caused by inequity and the lack of care. For the leader in a position of privilege, like Eleanor Roosevelt, this requires personally going to difficult places of poverty and injustice to learn from them, as she did by working on New York's Lower East Side. For a leader from the margins who understands the lack of equality and injustice found there, it means gaining access to the power and resources needed to initiate change in the margins. To marshal the resources needed to catalyze change, both types of leaders for the common good must be aware of the knowledge emerging from the margins. Despite the fact that people naturally shun suffering, leaders who are committed to their core values reach out in an act of inclusiveness to embrace the reality of the margins. As they do so, they are shaped into vessels more capable of holding the work of leadership for the common good. The Wisdom of the Margins The margins provide needed resources to leaders for the common good. One such resource is new relationships, which I think of as vital company since they are essential to furthering the common good. For the leader who comes from a privileged background, these are new associations from the margins with whom he can have direct conversations that reveal the depth of their struggle and the wisdom that can aid change. For the person born on the margins, vital company means allies in the privileged class with access to power and resources within the existing system, which they are willing to share to bring needed change. A second resource offered by the margins is what I call street smarts. This is the vivid awareness of injustices present on the margins, including their social, political, and economic causes. The pathway to awareness is different for the marginalized person and the person of privilege, but in both cases it is experienced as an awakening. Through vital company and street smarts, leaders for the common good gain information essential for the advancement of effective social change. For example, a manufacturing plant in Wisconsin was experiencing a sharp decline in productivity between 4 o'clock and 6 p.m. every day. The new young manager brought in efficiency experts to do a study, but nothing changed. The owner, now even more concerned, decided to talk to the guys on the floor about the problem. They explained that between 4 and 6 p.m. they were working overtime. They had not brought dinner with them and were hungry, and they were worried about how to let their families know they would be home late. They suggested that if the owner put in a vending machine so they could get something to eat and a phone so they could call home, he would probably see an improvement. The owner had both changes made, and the next day productivity increased. A third resource offered by the margins is existential freedom. 
This is gained not by intellectual curiosity or emotional intelligence alone, but through physically traveling to the margins and allowing that experience to shift one's point of view on the world. Existential freedom is the freedom to be fully present and fully responsible for one's life and to live life focused on a purpose greater than oneself. It's the freedom to listen to the call of conscience and one's core values and in doing so be unencumbered by cultural mores and the opinions of others that would get in the way of pursuing changes for the common good. For leaders of privilege, existential freedom provides the awareness that although they may still be in the oppressive system, they are no longer of it. They can identify with the margins and also continue to access and use the power and resources associated with privilege as they choose. For example, when Eleanor Roosevelt was first lady, she maintained her connection with those struggling on the fringes of society, which gave her information to use in recommending innovative legislation for a just society. For leaders from the margins, existential freedom is liberating in an equally powerful, though different fashion. As they wake up to the injustices around them, they see how the system is hurting them and their peers. They realize there may well be a price to pay for challenging the system and that they are already paying a price for their passivity. They are now free to choose which type of price they are willing to pay. Existential freedom can also provide leaders from either background the clarity to adopt a transformational leadership agenda despite the views of peers and culture. Whether one's peers are those seated comfortably around the campfire or those out in the cold and darkness, some won't like the call for change. For instance, both Eleanor Roosevelt and Harriet Tubman made their peers anxious when they challenged the system. As such leaders expand their capacity for action, they naturally become involved in a broader scope of activities for social justice and inspire others to participate. The more work they do for the common good, the more they notice additional groups that have been disenfranchised and begin to address their concerns as well. We see this expanding field of engagement dramatically in the evolution of Martin Luther King Jr. as a leader for the common good. In the mid-1960s, when he traveled to the North and experienced racism there, he shifted his focus from the black experience in the South to the black experience nationally. Then he realized that the good of the black community could not be achieved without addressing the good of everyone else, including those opposed to the goals of civil rights. Eventually, he recognized a global pattern of injustice endured by people of color around the world. Finally, his concern extended to the poor everywhere, regardless of race. He saw how the triple evils of racism, materialism, and war worked together to maintain the status quo for the disenfranchised and thus realized that they had to be addressed together. He expressed this view most clearly in his speech, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. Delivered in 1967 at New York City's Riverside Church, during that speech, in which he called on America to substitute for its neocolonialist policies a more principled view of international relations, he said, 
every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all men. By staying connected to their experiences on the margins, leaders for the common good draw moral inspiration from an ongoing personal encounter with injustices and thus maintain the perspective and moral resolve essential for successful social change. In this way, leaders continue to be fed by the vital company and street smarts inherent in the margins, both of which lead to more creative reforms on behalf of the common good. For leaders who come from the margins, this is a matter of remembering their roots. For those who come from privilege, this means staying connected with the disenfranchised after having journeyed to the margins. Practice for leaders from privilege. Going to school in the margins. For individuals who come from a social context of privilege, an important step in becoming leaders for the common good is to leave the comforts of the campfire and physically go to the margins. Today, privileged individuals see video clips of society's margins on the evening news or photos on the covers of weekly magazines and believe they know what it's like. They may send a donation to a local or international charity, but to be a change agent for the common good, it's not enough to phone it in. It requires physically going to the margins and experiencing the difficult truths themselves. Although when people from backgrounds of privilege physically go to the margins, they cannot really know the experiences of those who live there. They at least have a chance to look into the eyes of a mother struggling to feed her children, smell the garbage dump some families call home, and feel the heat in which men toil for wages insufficient to support their families. In Eleanor Roosevelt's case, this meant traveling through New York City's streets from its upper-class neighborhoods to the Lower East Side slums. For others, it might mean traveling to a developing nation and meeting with workers on a factory floor. People from a background of privilege may have different motivations for going to the margins. Some might seek out the experience as an adventure, while others might be passionately committed to a specific social concern and consciously choose to journey to the margins to witness conditions up close. But regardless of motivation, the personal encounter with the bitter reality of life on the periphery touches their hearts and minds, intensifies their compassion, and recalibrates their vision and sense of purpose. For example, a colleague in Seattle was enjoying a career as an attorney when one day, as part of a spiritual retreat, he volunteered at a local homeless shelter. Through that first-hand encounter with the dispossessed, he was inspired to leave his profession and work on behalf of the homeless community full-time, directing one of the most effective shelters in the city. When leaders are transformed by the margins into informed and inspired allies of the dispossessed, their leadership naturally reflects that inner shift. Such individuals may begin to question the oppressive systems they might have previously accepted as the norm. We can see such a shift reflected in the life of Oscar Romero, Archbishop of the Catholic Church in El Salvador. <laughs>
When he became archbishop, he was known as a mild-natured, scholarly cleric and was oblivious to the brutality that the 13 ruling families, the oligarchy of El Salvador, inflicted on the poor. Then one evening, Rutilo Grande, a local priest who worked with the poor, invited him to the countryside. To his horror, Romero witnessed heavy machinery dumping dirt on a mass grave of villagers who had been massacred by the military, the brutal henchmen of the oligarchy. From that day forward, the archbishop's eyes were open to the misery of the poor and the impudence of the wealthy. Consequently, he became a champion for the poor and a force for justice in his homeland, speaking for the marginalized and challenging the ruling elite to stop their oppressive policies. Encounters with those on the margins shape leaders by offering them an unfiltered view of the injustices in their own backyard as well as the world. And like Oscar Romero, they may experience a liberating disillusionment or dissonance. For instance, as leaders in the United States experiencing suffering and poverty in the ghettos and barrios, they more clearly comprehend how prejudiced systems create and maintain injustices and may hear a voice inside say, I thought America was a land of opportunity. As leaders experience such dissonance between what is and what ought to be, they are faced with a psychological dilemma. They must either deny what they now know or embrace the dissonance and work to close the gap. Hans Magnus Eisenberger's Song for Those Who Know reveals the subtlety of denial on the part of the privileged, the deft fashion in which they dance with what they know yet do not really want to see. Something must be done right away. That much we know. But of course it's too soon to act. But of course it's too late in the day. Oh, we know. We know that we're really rather well off. And that we'll go on like this. And that it's not much use anyway. Oh, we know. And we also know that we can't help anybody really. And that nobody really can help us. Oh, we know. And that we are extremely gifted and brilliant and free to choose between nothing and not, and that we must analyze this problem very carefully, and that we take two lumps of sugar in our tea. Oh, we know. We know all about oppression, and that we are very much against it, and that cigarettes have gone up again. Oh, we know. We know very well that the nation is heading for real trouble, and that our forecasts have usually been dead right, and that they are not of any use, and that all of this is just talk. Oh, we know. Working to close the gap between what is and what ought to be is usually a difficult path. It means opening ourselves to pain, but also to growth. Part of each of us loves comfort and security and prefers to avoid work. But as Hungian analyst James Hollis points out, we also have a deeper part that loves adventure, purpose, and meaning. This part is brought to life when we work for the common good. The most powerful choice a leader can make is to engage in a struggle with the forces that perpetuate just injustice. Even people from a background of privilege experience marginalization in some form at some point in their lives. We see this in Eleanor Roosevelt's life when she felt isolated. While people naturally prefer to distance themselves from these personal experiences, in fact, they are key to empathizing with the suffering of others 
and developing a desire to change systems that cause this suffering. In my case, I was the smallest kid in my junior high school and also shy, uncoordinated, and a poor student. As a result, I endured bullying, rejection, loneliness, and the fear of living in a disadvantageous position. To my surprise and delight, during the summer between my junior and senior years in high school, I grew six inches, put on 35 pounds, and began to blossom as an athlete and student. When I went to college, I enjoyed academic success, some modest athletic prowess, and popularity among my peers, serving as a student leader. In retrospect, however, the life experiences that I consider the most instructive in orienting me to be an agent of social change were not my college days, but my time feeling marginalized in junior high school when I was not invited around the campfire. However tempting it might be to subjugate such difficult memories to the past and leave them unexamined, a person's experiences of being marginalized offer important insights into the suffering of others. When people from a background of privilege go to the periphery, they often arrive with the plan of being a helper. This attitude, though well-intentioned, is born of the unconscious assumption that individuals in need are somehow less than the ones offering support. This up-down attitude, usually expressed as charity, can produce some good, but is limited. A better attitude is not to see them only in terms of their marginalized experience and to treat them generally in a more egalitarian way, as equal human beings. This point was brought home to me one evening when a few of us from my church served dinner at a Seattle homeless shelter. On our previous visit, visit which had been our first, we had stayed behind the serving line and greeted the hungry homeless men with a quick hello as we dished up plates of food. On this second visit, we went beyond the safety of the kitchen to eat with these men. Awkward at first, the conversations gradually became more natural, and some of the men began to tell their stories. Later, one member of our group said, I was shocked. I met a former Boeing engineer who lost his job, then his family, and his home, and is now on the streets. Talking with him blew my stereotypes of the homeless right out of the water. The most fruitful stance towards the disenfranchised is a posture of humility informed by the readiness to learn, realizing that those on the margins have essential insights into the nuances of their social situation and how their peers get hurt and trapped by unjust systems and structures that surround them. Robert Terry, leadership educator and civil rights activist, flipping the term for the normal power dynamic, calls this posture down up. In such interactions, the person of privilege sits at the feet, as it were, of the person in the margins, believing that when it comes to injustice, the marginalized have the right and the credentials to be our teachers. This means setting aside assumptions about what is true and instead listening openly to their first-hand experiences on the periphery. Such an inversion of the typical power dynamic where the marginalized person claims her power and dignity, and the privileged person assumes a posture of humility and curiosity, offers both parties the chance to see and act in a new way. As people spend time together in this transforming posture, 
they begin to recognize how unjust systems entrap both of them and how their liberation is intertwined. As trust builds, information flows more freely and insights into what is broken and how to fix it become more evident. An example of inverting the typical power dynamic occurs in episodes of the television show Undercover Boss. For instance, the April 2010 episode chronicled Rick L. Arquila, CEO of Roto-Rooter, leaving the comforts of the office and going incognito to join his employees in the trenches. He put his assumptions aside and became his employee's apprentice. Crawling under porches, clearing sewer lines, and trying to handle the complexities of the dispatch office. Toward the end of the show, Arquila speaking before a gathering of Roto-Rooter employees about his recent excursion into the realities of their daily lives, explained that he had gone undercover to learn more about the company and wound up having a more powerful experience of empathy than he had ever imagined. He wept as he reflected on his employees' willingness to do their difficult, often unsavory work with such concern for customers. He laughed when he recalled that he had been unable to operate the computerized dispatch system that he had helped create, and he promised to work with the employees to design a simpler system. He thanked his employees for their dedication and confessed that he had learned a great deal from them about how to make the company a better place to work. By approaching his employees on equal ground, Arquila acquired Vital Company. His close association with the workers provided him with street smarts about the Roto-Rooter, was doing well, and offering top-notch service to customers. The workers also helped him see that the company was not giving workers the same respect they were asked to give customers. Arquila was shaped by his experience on the margins and, as a result, was able to reshape his company in ways that benefited his employees and his customers. Practice for Leaders from the Margins, Claiming Self-Worth For individuals who come from the margins of society, an important step in becoming leaders for the common good is to gain awareness of their own self-worth, even while living in the midst of an unjust culture. It is easy for the dominant culture to undermine the self-worth of people on the periphery and for them to buy into the idea that they are less important than others and deserving of mistreatment. When marginalized persons begin to perceive themselves as having dignity and self-worth while living in unjust situations, they often experience internal dissonance. They can't reconcile the thoughts, I am somebody and I am nobody, and must let go of one of them. This can be the first step toward awakening to their own potential capabilities as leaders for the common good. During the civil rights movement, when the Memphis garbage workers went on strike, they weren't carrying signs that protested wages or working conditions. Their signs read, I am a man. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. knew that once his people had regained their human dignity, they would begin to recognize the injustices around them. Similarly, members of today's gay-slash-lesbian communities embrace a sense of dignity and self-worth. This new perspective of themselves allows them to see the injustices in their midst with more clarity and reject homophobia as a violation of their human rights.
As people who endure social injustice gain awareness of the dissonance between what is and what ought to be, they become inspired to serve as change agents for the good of their people and the redemption of the greater society. At this point, they, like their privileged counterparts, are faced with the choice of either denying the situation or embracing it and working to change it. For marginalized individuals, denial often takes the form of internalized oppression, the third and culminating form of oppression within a threefold schema of social oppression. First, oppression is individualized. For instance, when a single, more fortunate person may have biased views toward women or the gay lesbian community. Second, oppression is institutionalized, as when biased sentiments become embedded in institutions, resulting in oppression such as gender-biased educational or economic inequality. Third, once an entire group has been beaten down enough by individual and institutionalized oppression, members of the group begin to practice internalized oppression. For example, a woman who has been told by countless individuals as well as educational systems that she is unequipped for the rigors of an engineering degree might internalize this biased view. Thus, participating in her own oppression by not filling out an application and following her dream. People who live on the margins of society already have street smarts since they cannot afford to be oblivious to the reality of the margins. For instance, Low-income parents know the flaws and loopholes of the food stamps or Medicaid programs because it is too costly not to know. Similarly, people living in the backcountry of Central America see how NAFTA hurts their families and how the United States foreign policy has brought the death and hardship to their neighbors. They do not want oppressive government policies requiring them to grow crops that they cannot eat and sell them for a price that keeps them poor. They want land reform and the ability to grow their own crops so they can feed their families and earn a little extra money to send their children to school and enjoy a few modest pleasures. A significant challenge for people on the margins is to embrace their street smarts and put these gifts to work by trying to reform the system for the common good. They accomplish this by struggling with the forces of oppression until they find a better way forward. To do so, they must ignore the voices that say, you can't fight City Hall, and listen instead to their deeper inner voices that remind them injustices need to be changed. Then, as they find their own inner strength, they will be better equipped to deal with any pushback of the system. Working to change the system is not easy, but with a new sense of self-worth and some ingenuity, progress becomes possible for people on the margins. On a trip to El Salvador, I experienced such ingenuity for progress. I met two women who had taken a leadership stance to put what they knew into action. They decided to stop growing crops for global fruit companies and to instead direct their energy to starting an egg business. They raised chickens for eggs which they sold to other villagers for less than the normal market price and still made a profit. As a result, their family income was more consistent because it was not dependent on the volatility of global food prices. 
their neighbors could purchase eggs at a better price, and their successful entrepreneurism increased their confidence and self-respect. For leaders from the margins, Vital Company helps them recognize their dignity and self-worth, as well as access society's power and resources. Vital Company can take two forms. One form could be a peer from the margins who is further along the path to empowerment and can serve as a mentor. Malcolm X experienced this kind of vital company. While in prison for six and a half years, he began to find new meaning for his life by becoming a voracious learner. Reading in his cell until late in the evenings, his search for meaning deepened after his brother Reginald wrote to tell him about his recent conversion to Islam. Eventually, Malcolm became intrigued with the Muslim tradition and wrote Elijah Muhammad, leader of the Nation of Islam in the United States. Through the influence of Reginald and Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm quit smoking and eating pork and began to atone for his earlier life through submission to Allah. The Heart of Islamic Practice These two black men helped Malcolm broaden his perspective to see that he did not have to be a victim of the cultural bias existing in the United States, and that he could create a new life as a formidable prophetic leader for justice, something no white person could have done for Malcolm at that point in his life. The other form of vital company could be someone from a more privileged background who can act as an ally. For example, white abolitionists helped Harriet Tubman find her way to freedom, and then assist others to do the same. Similarly, when nations around the world chose to divest their holdings from companies doing business in South Africa in the mid-1980s, it gave the black leadership of South Africa access to global leverage and encouragement to persist in their work for social justice. Twenty years earlier, Cesar Chavez and the migrant farm workers he represented gained support for their struggle for justice from those in the majority culture who joined their boycott and refused to buy grapes. Whether leaders for the common good begin from a place of privilege in a social setting or from the margins, the question, am I in the third circle, invites them to open up to whatever their personal experience of the margins may be and let it transform them. For privileged leaders, the question is an invitation to turn off the internal tapes that may start to run mists the reality of the margins, especially those that seek to blame the victim rather than wrestle with the institutionalized injustices with which the marginalized struggle. For leaders who begin from the margins, the question, am I in the third circle, becomes an opportunity to break the hold of internalized oppression. They realize that if they are committed to the good of all, then that includes them and their group. At this moment, they can turn off the tapes that say they and others in the margins are not deserving of care or justice, thus awakening to their own humanity. For leaders of privilege and leaders from the margins, the change they envision can best be accomplished when they access the wisdom existing in the margins. Armed with the necessary knowledge of what is not working on the periphery of society and fortified by new allies, they can move forward to rectify the injustices on their watch. Exercises. Taking an inventory of your experiences on the margins. 
If you view yourself as a person of privilege in your community, institution, or nation, consider how that status has shaped your identity and how experiences on the margins have changed your life and leadership as you reflect on the following questions. How has your life been enhanced or diminished by your experience as an individual of privilege? How have you explored the margins in your own social setting? What are three steps you could take to have a more direct experience on the margins? What have you discovered on the margins and how is that experience informing your life? Have you ever felt marginalized? And if so, how? How might your experience of being marginalized add value to your leadership capacity? If you view yourself as marginalized by the culture in your community, institution, or nation, consider how that has shaped your identity, life, and leadership as you reflect on the following questions. How has your life been enhanced or diminished by your experience as a person of the margins? What unjust systems are negatively affecting your life? What are three steps you can take to pursue your own awakening and enhance your sense of self-worth? What can you do to help your peers on the margins experience their own awakening? Reflection questions. How is your approach to leadership informed by the following resources of the margins? Vital Company, Street Smarts, Existential Freedom. If you are in a position of privilege, how could you take a refresher course on the margins? If you are in a marginalized position, how can you move toward liberating yourself and reclaiming your dignity and sense of self-worth? Who might be your allies?